I want to tell you about my great, great, great grandfather, Orson Peck. Uh, he was a very faithful follower of Christ. And he and his brother uh, started a uh, town called Lumpok uh, in California. It still exists to this day. He's, uh, they also started the First Baptist Church of Lumpok. They were deacons at the church. And uh, Grandpa Orson, as I call him, uh, you know, very affectionate, meant a lot to me. Um, he, was, uh, he was married and uh, was uh, three years older than his wife. And when he was 63, in 1875, his 60-year-old wife Lydia died. And uh, we've got a picture of her headstone. And um, now 1 Timothy chapter 3 says that a deacon should be a husband of one wife. And he was faced with a problem. His wife died. And he took that as a command to remarry. In other words, he was worried that if he wasn't a husband of one wife, that he would have to give up being a deacon, which was very important to him. And so he married uh, a lady named Rachel. Well, Rachel died in 1881. Again, he remarried. Married a woman named Sarah. Sarah died in 1886. Again, he remarried. He married a, a lady named Anne. Guess what happened? She died in 1897. He remarried again. And he married his fifth wife, Hannah, who he outlived again. She died in 1901. By this time, he was 89 years old. And apparently, the town of Lompoc was running out of women. <laughs> Two years later, at age 91, he was an invalid. And the widow of the former pastor of the church that he started moved from Nova Scotia back to Lompoc, California to care for him. And he repeatedly asked her for her hand in marriage, um, which I find amazing uh, that a 91-year-old invalid would want to get married again. But she declined, and um, she nevertheless cared for him. And so later that year, um, when he died, she gave him a proper burial uh, at the Evergreen Cemetery in Lompoc next to his five wives. And uh, all, you go to Lompoc today and see this. People travel there who are interested in history and see Grandpa Orson. Now, I tell you that story because at the last week of Jesus' life, he's in the temple area. Some Sadducees, a religious group of leaders, came to Jesus with a hypothetical situation, similar to Grandpa Orson. And we're going to look at that today in Mark chapter 12. Take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 12. And what we're going to find here in the sermon today, we're going to cover four stories. Any one of these stories could be a sermon on their own. But I want to cover all four because it really makes a, co a cohesive statement uh, to us. And what we discover is that Jesus has a discouraging encounter with these Sadducees, followed by an encouraging encounter with someone. And then he gives a discouraging example, and then an encouraging example. And so first we run into these Sadducees in Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 23. Sadducees came to him who say there, that there is no resurrection. 
And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This is called a leveret marriage. And it's, a, it's an Old Testament law that if, uh, to, in order to carry on the family name, that if, a, if, if you are a man and, and you die and leave no children to carry on your family name, no heirs, that your brother is required to take your widow as his wife until they can produce a child. And that child will be given your name, and the child will be your heir, even though you're dead and gone. And so it's called leveret marriage. And uh, so they, they explained this to him, and they said, you know, this is what Moses taught us to do. Now here's the hypothetical situation. Verse 20. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And so the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise all the way through the seven. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Now, this question that they pose, it's, it's a ridiculous question. And it's got a lot of problems. Uh, and in fact, the issue is they're not even really asking a question. They, they just want to debate Jesus, or actually they probably want to ridicule his beliefs because they didn't even believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe the resurrection happened. They didn't believe in angels as well as we'll, we'll talk about in just a minute. Um, and so they're, they're talking about this institution, this leveret marriage, which was established 1,400 years before. But by the time of Jesus' day, by the time this conversation was taking place, uh, there are hardly any leveret marriages, none whatsoever. And so it was a completely hypothetical situation. It was fictional. And so in their scenario, not only uh, did, the, did the once one woman outlive each of her seven husbands, but they also happened to be able to produce no children for her. And so Jesus finally gives his response. And there are two problems that Jesus points out in verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. That's a powerful statement right there. Jesus comes out from the very outset, outset and said, You guys are dead wrong. And you're wrong because you don't understand the Scriptures. You don't understand the Scriptures. It is so important for you and I. We consider ourselves to be spiritual people, religious people. It is so important for us to not forsake this book that we say we base our lives on, that we say we base our church on. We must understand what God says. Jesus criticized the Sadducees for not understanding the Scriptures, and also, they didn't believe in the power of God. They didn't believe that God was capable of raising the dead. And so they had two, these two problems from the outset. Jesus continues in verse 25. He said, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Here's the deal. The Sadducees, they assume that Jesus believes that Leverite marriage will continue in the resurrection, which is dead wrong. Why? Because resurrected people don't die. They don't die. Leverite marriage is based on someone dying. 
And so Jesus says to them that when these fictional people, this woman and her seven husbands, are raised in the afterlife, that there is no, there is no marriage in heaven. There's, there's no more lever at marriage in heaven. Resurrected people are like the angels in that they don't die. And so there's no lever at marriage. Verse 26 and 27. Jesus continues. He says, by the way, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Jesus says, let's deal with this issue about the resurrection. Because it's a critical issue. He says, the resurrection will happen. As for the dead being raised, he said, don't you read in the book of Moses? And I love the way he puts it. In the passage about the bush, what would we say? We'd say Exodus chapter 3. But they didn't have chapters back then. He said, in the passage about the bush, have you not read that God said to Moses, let me put some dates on it. God said to Moses, 1,400 plus years before Christ, God said, I am the God of Abraham, who was 600 years before that. In other words, God did not say to Moses, that Abraham guy that's dead, I was his God. No, God said, I am Abraham's God, which indicates that Abraham is still alive. He may not be walking the earth, but Abraham is still going to be resurrected one day. And so will Isaac, and so will Jacob. God is not God of the dead. He is God of the living. And he says to them, you are quite wrong. You're not just wrong, but you are quite wrong. Well, Jesus then has an encouraging encounter. Verse 28, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And the scribe, he saw that Jesus answered them well. And the scribe asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Which is the greatest commandment? Which is the first commandment? Perhaps you've heard this question before. Perhaps you've studied this passage before. Here's where the guy was coming from. In the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the law, there are 613 commandments. And there are 248 positive commandments where God says, do this, do this, do this, do that. Make this sacrifice, do this other thing. 248 positive things for God's people, the Jews, to do. There are 365 prohibitions. Don't do this. If you're trying to be a faithful servant of God. So the question is, is there one law by which we can interpret all of the other laws? Is there one foundational law that God gave us that all the others are built upon? Because if I can understand that, then I can understand the scriptures. And more importantly, I can understand how to live my life. Jesus, which one? is the first which one 
is the greatest of all the commandments. This man was different than the Sadducees. The Sadducees, in the previous story, they came to Jesus and they were throwing out a fictional question. They were trying to trap him. They were trying to ridicule him. They were just trying to debate him. They didn't really care to believe in Jesus. They didn't really want to be his follower. They didn't really want to serve him and obey God. But this man did. This man saw Jesus' wisdom, and he approached Jesus with this question that obviously had been bugging him for some time. How can I be obedient to God? What's the most important commandment of all? And Jesus responds in verse 29, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Got it? Number one is love God. Number two is love people. And Jesus says, there is no other commandment, singular, greater than these two. I love that. Jesus says, there's no other commandment greater than these two. It's as if Jesus is saying, when you love God, you will love other people. These are two sides of the same coin. Someone who hates his brother, don't tell me that he loves God. In fact, we read that in the, in the book of James. If you love God, you will love other people. There's no greater commandment than this. What does the scribe say? He says in verse 32, and the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. I find this amazing. This man, the, Jesus did not say anything about burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this man's figuring it out. He says, yeah, loving God and loving people, that's so much more important than bringing my tithes in. That's so much more important than bringing my sacrifice in. That's so much more important than anything else. I've got to love God. I've got to love people. Jesus sees that he's figuring it out. Verse 34, And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Did the man ask about the kingdom of God? No. Did the man say, what must I do to be saved? No. What did the man say? The man started from the foundation of the law. What part of the law is the most important? Jesus responds, the man responds to that, and Jesus says, you're not far from being saved. You're starting to get it. You're starting to understand. You see, it takes more than simply obedience to the law to be saved because we've already disobeyed the law. Jesus points the man away from that starting point of the, of the law to the real key, which is entrance into the kingdom of God. 
So Jesus encourages the man to continue. Jesus had this encouraging encounter with this man. And then Jesus gives a discouraging example. In other words, someone not to follow. Verse 35, Jesus, taught, as he taught in the temple, he said, he posed this question. And by the way, all this week, this last week of Jesus' life, the Jewish leaders kept coming to him, posing question after question, question after question, trying to trick him, trying to trap him, trying to get him in trouble, trying to get the people to turn away from him, trying to get him in trouble with the Roman authorities. And Jesus answers the question, he answers the question, he answers the question. And now, he's got a question of his own. And it's after this question that they won't ask him anything else. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Everyone understood. Let me help you follow this argument, this line of thinking. Everyone knew that King David, who lived a thousand years before, that the, that the eternal king would come from David's lineage. The Messiah, the Christ, would come from, would be a descendant of, King David. And David himself wrote these words. The Lord, that's Yahweh, that's God, God said to my Lord. King David is saying that God the Father said to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Who gets to sit at the right hand of the king? Whoever does, that is the person who has as much authority as the king. That is the person who can speak for the king. That is the person who can act on behalf of the king. David said that the father said to the Messiah, Come sit at my right hand. Have all authority over heaven and earth, essentially. Until I take all of your enemies and I put them under your feet. What does that mean? Until you step on their necks. A sign of complete authority. A sign that the person being stepped on it has to be completely submissive. Now, here's the question. If God the Father said to the Messiah, Come sit at my right hand and have all authority. How can the Messiah be David's son? In other words, David called the Messiah, who is his son, my Lord. That's not right. Time out. Wait, wait a second. Think about this. Did Abraham ever call his son Isaac my Lord? No. Why? Abraham came first. Abraham was greater than Isaac. Isaac was greater than Jacob. It would be a complete misunderstanding of what authority really is for someone who comes later to be greater than someone who came before. And yet David 
says about the Messiah, He is my Lord. How could David submit to one of his descendants? It can only be if not only is the Messiah David's descendant, but also the Messiah has to be God. The only person that could fulfill David's prophecy where the Lord said to my Lord, come sit at my right hand until I put all your enemies under your feet. The only person that could possibly fulfill that is someone who is fully God and fully man. Jesus poses this question. A question that the Sadducees, the scribes, could not answer. How is it that the Messiah, who is a descendant of David, is David's Lord? How can that be? The great throng heard him gladly. The crowds loved seeing their religious leaders uh, get their arguments poked holes in. Verse 38. And in his teaching, Jesus said, Beware of the scribes. He's telling the crowd, think about it. He's in the temple telling the people, look out for the guys running the temple. This is not how to influence friends. But Jesus is telling the truth. He says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. Their robes were white, as opposed to everyone else's robes, which were brown or natural color. They walked around in white robes so they could stand out. And they liked greetings in the marketplaces. They liked to be called by their uh, most dignified names in the marketplaces, out loud so everyone could know how important they are. Verse 39, they liked to have the best seats in the synagogues, in every synagogue, there was a, a place called the, it was the Torah box. It was a box that the book of the law that someone had written was placed in this box. And there were certain seats, seats with backs to them, which was unusual in that day. But there were seats up close to the Torah box that was reserved for the scribes because they thought themselves to be so important. They got the best seats. And they like to have places of honor at feasts. If you had a wedding feast, if you had some other kind of feast or celebration, if you knew what was good for you, you had better invite the scribes. And you had better give them the place of honor sitting at your right hand if you're the host. Otherwise, things would not go well for you in the community. They would use their influence to despise you and have others despise you. Verse 40, Jesus says they also devour widows Houses. What does that mean? There was a practice in that day where widows would go to religious leaders and they would ask the religious leaders to help provide uh, for them in the case that they could not provide for themselves. And they would essentially be able to sign over their property in order to have food on the table. And these guys would abuse the privilege. And they would take the widows' houses and sometimes even kick the widows out of their houses and leave the widows with nothing. It'd be the equivalent of a, of a, of a pastor uh, taking advantage of a widow in order to benefit himself financially. What would we think of such a person? 
There's nothing lower than that, right? That's what these guys did. And for a pretense, they would make long prayers. Jesus says they will receive the greater condemnation. Don't be like them. Right after he begins this talk about the scribes and how to not be like them because they're hypocrites. Then Jesus sees somebody. Verse 41. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. There were, uh, you may not know this, there were 13 offering boxes. They didn't pass the plate like we do. But they had offering boxes. They were shaped like trumpets. They were small at the top and then they expanded down to the base. There are 13 of them, all in the court of women. Why the court of women? Well, if you put them in the court of men, the women can't get to the court of men, so they can't make an offering. So everyone can be in the court of women. They put all the offering boxes in the court of women all around the temple, 13 of them. Uh, two of them were for the temple tax. The other 11 were for different kinds of free will offerings. And, uh, and so people would come in, and they would place their money in. And some people who are very wealthy would make a big show of it. <laughs> you know, and pour in all their money and make lots of noise and, and all of that. But Jesus sat down opposite the treasure and he watched people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And Jesus is just sitting there watching this. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. She put in what's called lepta. Two lepta is the name of the coin. It's the Aramaic name. And together, when you add those two lepta together, it was worth one sixty-fourth of a day laborer's daily wage. One sixty-fourth of a day laborer's daily wage. For example, if, a, if we paid a day laborer today, a hundred dollars a day for a full day's work. She would have put in the equivalent of a dollar fifty-six. Okay. Think of it in those terms. The widow comes to worship God with God's people. She walks in. She has a dollar fifty-six to her name. She gives it all. To God's work. She put in the two small copper coins, which make a penny, we read. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow, he points her out. Jesus never speaks to her. But he just points her out from a distance. He knows that God is watching. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. When it comes to God watching us give, it is not about how much you give. That's a dangerous thing for preachers to say. 
because people will hear that much. And they'll say, whew, I'm off the hook. I don't have to give much. But I'd rather be faithful to God's word than worry about money. According to Jesus, in this example of the widow, it's not how much you give that matters to God. It's how much you keep. It's how much you keep. This woman is a great example. A humble, nameless widow. Here she is, a perfect example of someone who had a true, heartfelt love for God. The scribes, the Sadducees, on the other hand, they had a true, heartfelt love for themselves. They disguised it by saying they loved God. They prettied it up. They put on all the airs and showed how religious they were, how important they were. But God's watching. God's watching us too. The point of these stories is this. Do you really love God? Do you really love God? God's watching. He knows. Or do you just love yourself? The greatest commandment in all of Scripture is to love God with everything you've got and your neighbor is yourself. The question is, is that going on in your life? 